Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes and soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 57. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like how Oliver Stone wrote Conan the Barbarian and Scarface, yet no one knows about it, why Pushing Tin is a great lost movie without a genre, and is Matthew McConaughey the most talented male crier in acting today? No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observations. So this week has been an education in adulthood for me. I know it's coming a little late being 34, but better late than never, I guess. And because I started doing daily cleaning tasks, you know, I kind of, I made like a chart. So one day it'll be, you know, the bathroom and the floors. Next day it'll be clean the doors, electrical sockets, carefully. I mean, not electrical sockets. I'm not going to shock myself. I mean, the what's it called? You turn the lights on and off, light switches and whatnot. But one day it's the walls. One day it's the kitchen and the oven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm pretty taken aback by the overall intensity and veracity you need to have to properly clean a bathroom. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's superhuman level kind of intensity. I mean, I had to FaceTime with my mom and get step-by-step tub cleaning directions because, you know, like which cleaner to use, what scrub to use, is this good? No, you know, do it for another five minutes. And by like, I looked at the time too, it was minute 42 of this one-on-one instruction I was gassed. I was sweat was pouring down. My eyes are irritated from the various sprays. Who knows if I was using them correctly? <laughs> and by the end of it, though, I felt great because I mean, it's just a, it's just a you know a feeling of completion. But during it, it was just terrible. It was just I mean, I have a soft cherub like you know soul. It's just I don't, I'm not good at manual or hard labor. It just hasn't been ingrained in me. So this felt like completing a marathon. You know, just that nitty gritty, getting through it kind of vibe. But I'm told my mom like <laughs> like comforted me. She's like, first one's the hardest. Now all you have to do is main, maintain. You did a great job. You know, she's like the best cheerleader on the face of the air. She's like cheering me on for, you know, scrubbing the tub 10 years later than I should have known how to do it. Or I, probably, I don't know, as a kid, do you do that? Does anyone do that as a chore as a kid? Or is that like manual labor for a kid? I'm not sure. But now my house feels like a castle. And I've noticed kind of that my chest is puffed out. I have a sense of pride and ownership injected into my veins now that I have a clean domicile that I'm cleaning. And I don't know, just something great. It's just fun. I get I get why people clean. <laughs> it's just so basic and stupid to sound it's sounding out loud, but that's where I'm at. And I took a walk at 2.30 in the morning uh, yesterday uh, with my dogs. Love doing it you know, late at night. Just world's mine. And I was listening to Binge Mode. Uh, it's a podcast. It's really popular. It's from The Ringer. And they were breaking down Alex Gardner's television program, Devs. It's this whole show about determinism and, you know, tech giants and the, ph- the philosophy of quantum, quantum physics. And they spent a solid 30 minutes actually explaining various levels of quantum physics. Like they talked about determinism, you know, if we're just on tracks of, you know, if I push a pencil it's because something in my life happened beforehand that was going to determine that I pushed that pencil. Multiverse theories, you know, that there's billions of versions of me doing slightly different things. Schrodinger's cat theory, which is like the craziest theory I've ever heard. It's a theory that there's a cat in a box and there's some acid that could tip over and hit some radioactive material and possibly kill the cat. 
Now, you're not sure whether the acid is going to spill or not. So until you open the box, the cat is technically, by this theory, alive and dead at the same time because living or death is based on observing of that. So when you open the box, basically you either give the cat life or you kill it. But until that point, you have the cat simultaneously being alive or dead because that's what you're observing. And that's just, I mean, that hurts my head even explaining it. And it was like mental gymnastics keeping up. And I love, I mean, the dedication and detail Jason and Mallory put into binge mode. They don't have to go 30 minutes into explaining the whys of quantum physics. They could just talk about, uh, like, they could just talk about someone's haircut or talk about a scene they like. No, they went into the nitty gritty. And so I'm going to give that a whirl by laser focusing on my favorite scene in the eight seasons of Game of Thrones. So first, I want to give some context on why I haven't done a single pod on one of my favorite programs of all time. Because, I mean, you would think within the top 20 of just, because I just spit out topics of things I'm interested in. Game of Thrones, you know, was, I mean, I would listen to podcasts. I would watch the after shows. I would, I read a couple of the books, you know, audiobooks. I guess that's cheating. Uh, you know, after I got into the show and I don't know, it just, I mean, it was one of my, it was an obsession, you know, the whole, it took the world on fire. It's just fun when everyone's gushing about it. But I never did a podcast on it, at least thus far. And the reason is the tragedy of the last two seasons are, I mean, they're just still flopping and dragging in my brain. Just, just They're just terrible. And for all of us nerds who love Game of Thrones out there, it just cuts so deep. It just felt violently personal, like as if uh, Benioff and Weiss were dropkicking us all individually, right in the heart. And then he was casually drinking our tears. That's what it felt like. I mean, the only comparison I have to give people who don't understand how bad the last two seasons of Game of Thrones were, were picture you're married to a wonderful well-rounded man like he's well-spoken dashingly handsome emotionally honest and philosophically profound he's the whole package and he could be whimsical and full of wonder you know take you to france randomly on a sunday uh and but he has a soul that's grounded in reality like he can deal with things and he can be you know a real adult about things and he could speak profoundly about the ills of the world And let's say you've been married to this man for six beautiful years. You know, the perfect, great wedding, great house, job, all that stuff. You guys get along, still laugh at each other's jokes, you know, no eye rolling or anything like that. Actually, I heard there's a study at the University of Washington that if you go with your significant other and they interview you for two hours, they can identify with a 93% accuracy if you're going to get divorced in five years. And the main thing is the eye rolling and like kind of belittling the other person's ideas. So if you're so if you're in a relationship and someone's giving you a lot of eye rolls, guess what? It's not a good not a good thing. But anyways, you got this perfect man and you're six six years of beautiful marriage, and then something changes. All of a sudden, he just has a whirlwind midlife early life crisis. He's buying a candy red Corvette. He starts doing MMA fighting and taking HGH and getting weird tribal tattoos. He starts obsessively listening to Joe Rogan. He's all about his Instagram and his incoming APAC abs are all he wants to talk about. And to the outside world, these flashy distractions seem cool on the surface. I mean, it's, you know, like the Dan Blazarian, you know, Insta fame kind of stuff. But the soul of the person who you married is kind of rotting from this stuff and from the personal neglect. And this is what happened to Game of Thrones. It's like we trusted them to lead us to the end of this beautiful story and they gave us two seasons of giant, nonsensical action pieces 
that lacks soul or any true plot connections to the real story. I mean, yeah, there was dragons. Yes, there was fire, white walkers, battles, armies, you know, sword play, but there was no heart and it broke us all. It's really sad. I mean, it was like Bran the Broken. That's how I felt. I felt like I was Bran. And it's taken me over a year, but I'm finally ready to relive and remember the great first six seasons and finally recount what made Thrones so wonderful. So let's give it a whirl. Because, I mean, this is a show and a book that subverted all the stereotypical plots of fantasy storytelling. You know, Prince Charming was, you know, an incestuous uh, kid killer. I mean, it was crazy stuff like that. And it still gave us the magic and mystery of the medieval realm, but with kind of the brutal and beautiful human stories that could be as gutting as they were glorious. And I don't think any scene exemplified this more than my favorite scene, the first 19 minutes and 27 seconds of season six, episode 10, the season finale for season six, The Winds of Winter. Oh man, that makes me sad that it was the finale for season six. That means like, it was like the death nail of greatness. That was like the last time he got to hammer it in. Hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm not over it. <laughs> maybe it's too early. <laughs> but uh, normally, if you watch Game of Thrones, it doesn't have an impactful opening scene. It's generally four to five minutes. Rarely is there music you know, behind it. And it's kind of a place setter for the next 55 minutes of watching. You know, it's setting up plots. It's making connections between people. You know, it's not, I mean, there's rarely even a big action scene. And this was 20 plus minutes. And I mean, this was crazy because that this scene would normally be the final scene in most shows as, I mean, this, this scene takes place as Queen Cersei Lannister blows up the sept or as I mean, we would call it the church of the seven gods with barrels of wildfire. And she kills all her enemies from the Tyrell family and the religious group, uh, the, the sparrows and their leader, the high sparrow who intended to put Cersei on trial that day in that very set. And I was trying to think of a comparison for people who haven't seen the show of what this scene was like. And the only thing that comes to mind is the quiet brilliance and brutality of that final 10 minutes of The Godfather, where Michael Corleone gets murderous revenge on all his enemies while simultaneously attending a christening. And, you know, there's that great music. And I think they shoot Mo and while he's getting a massage and just all that cool stuff. And so in the scene, Cersei is sitting alone in her queen's chamber. And she's wearing this dress that looks, I mean, it doesn't look like a queen's dress. It looks like armor. She, she looks kind of Darth Vader-ish. It's this lizard skin kind of texture to it that's heavy, kind of flat black leather with militaresque uh, shoulder spikes and just this look of contempt plastered on her face as she pours a glass of red wine. And she's watching and waiting from afar, as you can see the sept in the distance from her window. And the musical choice in this entire scene is brilliant. So it's this calm, methodical, single piano note that rings with kind of this tension and terror. Whenever someone does that, it's the scariest thing ever. If I was going to ever make a horror movie, the whole score would just be, you know, one piano note. It sounds like, I don't know, like a haunted child playing at a, you know, playing in a Victorian style house. I mean, if you've ever seen Eyes Wide Shut, that's like the main musical uh, note. It's just one piano note. It scares the crap out of me. And... I mean, they, they contrast this with sudden bursts of quickening cello that adds urgency to the situation, too. So Cersei has put this terrorist attack in place and can only wait and watch from afar to see if her plan will come together as she hopes. But she seems confident. She's looking at it. You know, she's kind of calmly. Everything's been put in place, and she's, you know, thinking everything's going to go 
go right. But we'll see. We'll see. She has no idea. We don't have any idea. We've never seen anything like this on Game of Thrones. You know, kind of a, I mean, a giant level explosion, possibly killing, you know, hundreds of people and changing the course of Westeros. I mean, it's crazy. And she's had a lot of L's too. She's had a lot of losses. She's had to walk naked through the streets while people threw stuff at her and shamed her. Uh, I mean, she's been in prison. She's been she's been cut in half the whole show. So if she pulls this off, it's like, oh my God, the whole show flips on itself. So let's talk about the scene. So we cut to the sept itself. And it's just a giant spacious building with endlessly tall ceilings and sculptures. Kind of a Sistine Chapel, something like the Vatican would have. I mean, just this architectural wonder that's showing uh, kind of respect to the gods. And the High Sparrow, who's kind of the cult leader, and is kind of is slowly taking over the city and is the bane of Cersei's existence and vice versa, is so focused on shaming Cersei out of power yet again, he doesn't put together the why of Cersei's absence in the Sept. He thinks the trial can just go on without her, and her absence is just uh, cowardice. But Marjorie Tyrell, who's of the second most powerful house in the realm, knows Cersei's cunning and begins to analyze the reason behind her lack of attendance. And then you cut to Cersei's master Kyburn, who's kind of her, her like master of potions. And he's leading the Grand Master, who's kind of the, the who's the realm's like big honcho, um, like spell master person, into a dark, quiet room filled with creepy, dead-eyed, homeless children. And you're like, what is going on? And then the cello fades in, and Kyburn gives one of those maniacal uh, kind of villain speeches and just poetically apologizes for what is about to occur. And, you know, he's saying, like, it's not personal. And then he, he calmly says over the cello, he's like, before we can usher in the new, the old must be put to rest. And it's just, uh, creepy. And then this haunting religious, like, child's choir can be heard as the kids pull rusted knives and daggers from their tattered clothes. So creepy. And they surround the Grand Maester and without hesitation just viciously stab him to death as we see his mouth drowning in blood. I mean, Game of Thrones was never afraid of giving us the gore. And that this one gives us the gore. It's an old man being stabbed by kids. Something about little kids stabbing people, that's just, I don't know, it's just children in the corn to me. Anyways, you cut to Lancel Lannister, uh, a devotee of the High Sparrow. She's uh, Cersei's cousin. And he's chasing a sneaky child down through the sewers of the Sept. And we get the inclination from the Grand Master children scene that this young boy is also part of Cersei's plan. So Lancel follows him down into the subterranean structures of King's Landing. And mind you, this is all while cutting between Cersei's kind of confident watching from afar. There's a little bit of Tommen, her son, watching from, I mean, not watching, but just kind of uh, walking around in his little, uh, in his, you know, King's realm kind of area. And then you have Marjorie attempting to convince the High Sparrow to move the trial and get everyone in the sept the heck out of there because it's dangerous. She calls it out. You know, it's like the person in the movie who's like, run, you need to run. <laughs> All right, I mean, it's like, you know, when you're watching a, like a Friday the 13th movie and you're like, don't go in that room. She knows it. She's like basically yelling. He's like, we can't stay in this room. And the high sparrow is just stubbornly not allowing anyone to leave. And it's, and he's just unable to believe that Cersei may, be, may have outfoxed him. You know what I mean? Like, it's just that I can't, I can't admit that I was wrong. You know, stubbornness, it'll get you. And there's some scenes that when they cut back and forth of musical silence that are mashed against the single piano note and uh, against the building cello and the chorus. And when you're getting like pushed and, and pulled back, it's almost like you're in the ocean and just waves are just taking you like emotionally. 
like now it's quiet now it's tense it's like oh now there's a piano note i feel uneasy i'm moving the other way and then the cello calmly and creepily comes in i mean it's they're like they're messing with you on an entire on an auditory level and it's this tension bubble that just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding and you're like oh my god that's bigger than my head oh my god that's bigger than a hula hoop it's like oh my god that's like a hot air balloon when will this thing pop and it's just not popping and like i said lancel is following that boy underneath the set and the child pops out of the shadows and stabs lancel in the leg and leaves him you know to bleed out as his mission is complete but we don't know what the kid's mission was he's he's going back out and you're like what well, what did he do I and mean, what happened so we follow lancel's gaze towards something that is glowing green in the distance and he desperately crawls to see what is about to occur. We cut back to a, the frantic scene at the Sept where Marjorie again is pleading with the Sparrow to let the Highborn group at the trial leave before it's too late. And the High Sparrow's eyes are starting to dart back and forth and he's never seemed kind of out of control. He seems a little bit out of control as the guests start to panic. You know what I mean? Like you yell fire, people are gonna run towards the doors. I mean, Marjorie is the queen of the kingdom and she's like, we can't be here, we might die. And everyone's freaking out. But like I said, uh, Sparrow's unwilling to admit the possibility Cersei may have conned him. And so his, ze- his zealots, or zealots, gotta say the word wrong, zealots. <laughs> I like zealots better. His zealots forcibly restrain anyone from leaving the Sept. He cut back to Lancel, finally crawling in front of the giant reserves of wildfire. Now what wildfire is, is this highly explosive material taken from dragons when they existed back in the day. It's basically medieval napalm, dynamite, nuclear weapon. It's like the ultimate explosion. And there's just barrels and barrels and barrels. I mean, it looks like, you know, hundreds if not thousands of barrels poured all over the ground as three, like, unique candles just burned down to the end of their wick inches from his face. I mean, they're just at the very end. And we think, you know, he might have time to extinguish them. And I thought about this too. It's like, should he blow on them? Should he, you know, put it with his, between his fingers? I think you do between your fingers because I think, uh, things ignite from the air, like the gases, chemicals in the air, not the, just the uh, liquid form. So you want to you want to extinguish them with your fingers. But uh, and you're like, come on, come on, you can do it. And suddenly the music cuts out, and the wildfire ignites, and we see the reflection through Lancel's eyes, which is just a really cool way to see it, as the napalm green reaction that the wildfire has created just you know explodes. And you cut to the sept with the high sparrow is eviscerated, you know, from the ground, from this explosion. He almost looks like a Christ figure, you know, he has his arms out and, you know, it seems like a religious end for a religious guy. And then all the people in the set, boom, dead. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. It's like, no one got out of that. And the explosion encapsulates not only the sept, but everything around it. Cut to the neighboring streets as they're engulfed in neon flames, as pieces of the set fall to the earth like meteors. Even the bell tower from the set the giant bell is like ramming into, you know, other houses and just destroying them. And then we quietly move to a shot of Cersei kind of behind her shoulder. She's exhaling victoriously as she watches her enemies burn as the giant sept of the seven gods collapses like a house of cards. I mean, it's beautiful. It's cold. It's jaw dropping. Cersei is one and she's the mad queen of the kingdom and i mean there's all this rubble and all destruction she's you know the queen of the ashes and it's just so jarring to see cersei cersei in such a position of mass death and wrath as because up until now most of her political wheelings and dealings have been more kind of mean girls regina george individual passive aggressive psychological 
terrorism. You know what I mean? She's more just kind of a bully. And to see her now gloating in this military garb, you know, all in black over hundreds of dead bodies and a mass execution for those who plot against, plotted against her, you're just floored. It's like, you need a minute to reboot. Boot. You're like, am I watching this? Is this actually happening? You know, it's one of those out-of-body experiences. Like, the world of Westeros is forever changed. And in the first 20 minutes, usually you get, you know, the last 10 minutes as the, oh my God, moment. This is the first 20 minutes. Crazy. And the tragedy and poignancy of this uh, scene doesn't end right there. There's still more. So we see the same view of, as Cersei's window, but from a slightly higher kind of vantage point. It's her son, King Toman, silently watching the crumbling church. And he knows instantly it was his mother who lit the fuse because he was going to go to the trial and her, his king's guard, the mountain, wouldn't let him go. So it's clear that his mom, you know, spare, wanted him to be spared. And he kind of just calmly places down his crown, which is just this beautiful gold stag crown, and silently gets up on the ledge and he jumps headfirst to his death without hesitation. I mean, he just falls out the window. And the camera lingers on the view of the crumbling set for another six to eight seconds, just to add resonance to the ramifications of Cersei's actions. And she's, she's and this is the cool part too, because there's a f- uh, prophecy in Cersei's life that she'd have three children of blonde hair who shall die before she will. She was told this by a mysterious witch in the woods when she was just a girl. So two of her kids have died and you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it's coming true. And now the third child's death is because of a reaction to something to something she did when all she wanted to do in her life was protect her children. And the tie-ins in this mythology of Game of Thrones never cease to amaze me. I mean, you got the hold or hold the door stuff. I mean, it's just utterly fantastic. And it just makes it feel so satisfying that there's layers upon layers upon layers of this. And the scene ends and you're just left broken and befuddled about the future of the kingdom. You're like, can evil win? You know, I mean, this is in the dark night when the Joker is in the back of the cop car after escaping with Lau from the MCU, you're like, can he win maybe? And just what a masterful creation from a show that had so many of them too. I mean, you got the Red Wedding, the Battle of the Bastards, Hard Home, the Viper versus the Mountain, Ned Stark's Trial, and the Battle of Blackwater. But nothing compares to this 20 minute blend of tension, chaos, and world building. And the other ones you can kind of compare to each other. They have the same feel. This one felt like it was its own 20-minute movie that seemed almost apart from anything that was before. It's just so unique. It's just perfection. I mean, it's almost tense and hard to talk about. So let me add some le- let me add some levity to it. So uh, my friend Tyler Brown, uh, this two three years ago, we went to Chicago for a weekend during the summer, and you know we hung out, uh, went to some barbecues, went went on a boat. And, you know, hanging out, having fun. And this this came on, like, day three. We were just hanging out on a Sunday. We are kind of wiped from the weekend. And I had to watch because I'd seen it before a thousand times. And it's like, I'm not going to not watch this scene. And he'd never seen a minute of Game of Thrones before this. So he had no context, no idea what was occurring, why it was occurring. So when Toman jumps out of the window, he just lets out this bewildered, wait, what? <laughs> and I spent the next 30 minutes dying of laughter because I couldn't begin to explain to him why Toman jumped, even if I tried. Like, I would need three hours, two whiteboards, six assistants, you know, some YouTube clips, and, like, he'd have to read some books to make him understand the density and complexity and tragedy of Toman jumping. So instead of, you know, trying to get into that, I just laughed. And I laughed harder than I had in my entire life. 
I laugh. I mean, I laugh till you know, you know, when your like abs hurt or you know whatever, whatever my stomach is. I mean, I don't have abs. <laughs> whatever. I laugh till my stomach hurt. There we go. <laughs> and now every time I think of this scene, I think of confused uh, Tyler Brown in Chicago, just not understanding any of it. So God bless you, Tyler. You added some levity to an otherwise heavy favorite scene. So that's all I got for right now. So I hope you guys enjoyed and let me know what your favorite scene from Game of Thrones is. I'd like to talk about it later.